Hello and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads. Today's episode on Mahayana and the Bodhisattva ideal. I am your host, Dharma Kirti. Join with my friends, the squad, if you all want to say hi. Hey, everyone. Hey, how's everyone doing? Unfortunately, I, there, I don't know if there was a miscommunication or our friend Aura was running a bit late. Um, in any case, he's not here right now, but uh, hopefully he'll be able to join us in a bit. Um, so, yeah, I don't even know what to do without having Aura to bounce off of first thing, but that's okay. Uh, so we had some questions in in uh in the past and also just it was it's an interesting topic i think in its own right about you know well what exactly is you know mahayana buddhism how does mahayana buddhism differ from um the other major type of buddhism which is called theravada um and i'll uh make sure to address that a little bit in in in, um in a minute but first oh are we not we seem to have dropped out oh my goodness hello are y'all there I'm here, yes. Storm, are you there? Yeah, it, it looks like the the YouTube is is working. Okay, good. So we're everything's working fine. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the the I, I mentioned this a little bit in the in the 101 episode, but it's um you know worth maybe revisiting, also because it's it's just a big topic and it's it's you know maybe good to hear these things uh, a couple of times, so. When the when the Buddha was alive, when when so like the the sort of the structure of Buddhism in this in this way is is it's sort of uh, how to say it's put together in terms of like what the Buddha is because what the Buddha is from a Buddhist perspective, who the Buddha is or what a Buddha is is just one in a long series of beings that have attained this perfect and complete result is important for reasons I'll get to in a second. But the, the basic point is that anyone in principle can become a Buddha. Uh, this is, this is the, um, the central, the central point of Mahayana Buddhism and, and in a sense of Buddhism generally. Now this gets a little tricky because there's, there's some debate over like, you know, are there different degrees of accomplishment? Um, but but in in general terms, the idea is, and, and this is true across the board for every kind of Buddhist that has ever existed, is um, basically you have you have what we call samsara or cyclic existence or or um, the just the you know the multiverse you could say, uh, which is beginningless and endless, and within the multiverse, you have beings who are trapped beginninglessly. From beginningless time, we have been caught in this web of ignorance. In certain now, samsara or the the multiverse is structured such that within samsara there are many many world systems or universes, and some of these universes are called fortunate, and they're fortunate because a Buddha appears in them. Other universes are unfortunate because no Buddha appears in them. We here in this world system or this universe, um, which is called Jambudvipa, are fortunate. In fact, we're very fortunate because not only do we have our current Buddha, um, Buddha Shakyamuni, who was born in India about 2,500 years ago. Um, Buddha Shakyamuni is the fourth out of a thousand Buddhas that will appear in this world system over over time. 
in in our like so so world systems also they come into existence they exist they collapse and they disappear um this is the cycle of i mean world you know just as beings uh, you know, we, we were born and we die. Same thing happens with universes. So when you're talking about, you know, quote unquote, the Buddha, of course, it's important, you know, the Buddha Shakyamuni is, um, in a sense, unparalleled within our world system. But he is not the only Buddha that has ever appeared within our universe or that will ever appear within our universe. He's just the fourth in a line of a thousand Buddhas that will appear in our universe. So when you're talking about the early Buddhist tradition, which already kind of had this framework for understanding things, in terms of the early Buddhist tradition, the idea was that you attain the goal of becoming an arhant or an arhat, someone who is worthy is what that means. It's from the same root. Um, it's actually, sorry, it's a different root, but the point is it's from the root uh, that means to be worthy in Sanskrit. Um, and and the idea is that basically an arhant is someone who has completely removed all of their karmic afflictions, um, at least to the point where they will no longer be reborn. They have fixed the problem of, of suffering from within samsara. Because again, from a Buddhist perspective, death is not the end. Death It's impossible for death to be the end. Um, consciousness is a kind of thing that is beginningless and endless. So, and, and this is a problem because our ordinary consciousness is afflicted. We suffer. It sort of has suffering built into it in, in certain ways. Um, so as long as we, you know, death is not the end of our problems is the kind of the takeaway there. So you have this institution or this idea of, of what you want to attain is our hardship, which means someone who has fixed the problem of suffering for themselves to the point where they're no longer they they're no longer going to suffer they're no longer caught in samsara they they have done it okay the problem or it's not a problem for everyone but this is sort of what what would what would take shape as the mahayana what they what the what the early mahayanists and and to this day the sort of rhetoric of the mahayana sees is they see this as a problem because okay, you solve the problem of suffering when you do this for yourself, right? When you attain arhatship, you, you no longer um, have the seeds for suffering in your own psychophysical continuum. However, there are, you know, infinite sentient beings, infinite beings out there in the multiverse that are suffering. And it, it's the idea is basically that you as a as an arhant are not really able to help them in the same way that a Buddha can help them. And this, again, this goes all the way back. Um, this is not a Mahayana. This particular facet of it is not a Mahayana invention. Now, I, I really wish we had Aura here because I'm sure he provides some very valuable context. But oh, well, the as I understand it, basically, the the, the sort of the mainstream Buddhist, which I think is in some ways a better way to, to think about Theravada and the kind of non-Mahayana tradition generally, is there sort of like, it, it's not that it's original Buddhism in the sense that it didn't change ever, but it is it was 2,000 years ago, the, like the general kind of mainstream thing that everyone was doing. Um, and there was what was initially an offshoot was the Mahayana, and then it eventually grew and, and is now, you know, the kind of dominant form 
uh, in our world. But the point is, um, from a from the kind of mainstream perspective at the time, you the idea that you would want to attain full Buddhahood would, would have been sort of um, almost arrogant. Like, you don't need to attain Buddhahood. We have a Buddha already. He did it. You know, um, there is a future Buddha whose name is Maitreya, and he wrote some texts and from a Mahayana perspective. Uh, you know, there's an important text for Mahayana Buddhism that were written by the future Buddha, Maitreya, that we, you know, he sort of sent us, that we have now. Um, but, you know, unless you're, unless you're Maitreya, there's really no point in even trying to attain perfect Buddhahood because it's, it's completely unnecessary. The, the Mahayana sort of framing, and this is why, why they ended up calling themselves the great vehicle, which is what Mahayana means. The idea is basically, um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all that, um, you know, in a sense it's unnecessary. Really what it comes down to is motivation. It comes down to the sense of that there was an there was an understanding or an acknowledgement that you there's something built in to the nature of enlightenment. There's something built in to the nature of mind, essentially, where you have a burning feeling of not being able to rest, of not of not being able to have a, a you know a moment's kind of peace of mind at a cer- in a certain way as long as you know that there are beings out there that are suffering now again this can be kind of pathological and we don't want to be pathological it's not it's not like you know cuz some people lose their minds you know like there there's you know uh, there was some guy who who um, figured out or something that you can't really be altruistic because when you're altruistic, you get a benefit. And so he got really depressed and killed himself. And that's not at all what we're after. But the point is you, um, you have to, you have, there, there's some, there's something built into the nature of Buddhahood. Like, you know, there's this narrative we mentioned about how when the, after the Buddha attained enlightenment, he didn't really want to teach. He's like, who's going to be able to understand this, but then he went and taught anyway. And there's this sense of, you know, what does the Buddha do? What is the Buddha's activity is teaching the Dharma to beings without helping manifesting in the in the universe in a particular way that is able to help beings in in really profound ways, in limitless ways, limitless beings in limitless ways. And so this is where you you initially get this sense of and and there was a there was there were um, from an early period, there were there were fights about this uh, back and forth over you know well what like how important is this goal and 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 this is where you have in the in the in the mahayana this uh this sense of it the ideal shifts essentially this is why i said in the in the in the title of the page you know the 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 bodhisattva ideal bodhisattva is a term it means the being towards enlightenment or the 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 awakening being or, or really what it means and and again this is a term that comes from the earliest layers of buddhist scripture and practice because the buddha like shakyamuni buddha before he was a buddha was a bodhisattva a bodhisattva in general is a being who is on the path to buddhahood and this is where you get things like the in there's this famous collection called the Jataka Tales, which are the tales of the Buddha in his past life. Some of those lives he's human, some of those life he's like a war horse or an elephant or he's various things, and it's all these stories about all the great deeds he did and all his various, you know, human and non human lives, accumulating the merit 
in order to attain Buddhahood, because it said that in order in order to attain Buddhahood, you need a vast accumulation of merit, of good deeds, and a vast accumulation of wisdom. So, the idea is for the for the early Mahayanists, rather than seeing arhatship as a kind of goal in and of itself, that the the goal would then be no. I am going to manifest the be- the most perfect manifestation that I can, which is perfect and complete Buddhahood, perfect and complete awakening. Anything short of that is not acceptable. Essentially, these are religious fanatics. It's not a bad way to think. These are these are religious fanatics, and and so rather than pursuing this path right now and sort of attaining the goal in this life to whatever extent I can, you know, and, and trying to trying to attain arhatship, rather than do that, I am going to purposefully delay my enlightenment um, until I'm absolutely certain that all beings throughout samsara, throughout the multiverse, are where they need to be until they're all, every single one, without exception, established themselves at the level of perfect and complete awakening. And then... Think of it, uh, yeah, think please. Of it this also, way. Also, Kagyu, I think you're, you're, you're echoing a little bit if you want to maybe turn down your headphone volume. But sorry, go all on, right. Storm. Um, so you can think a good analogy is you know, imagine you're in a house with a bunch of people and some of them have injuries and they can't walk good and some of them are babies and they have difficulties, right? Well, say the house catches fire in the night. A bodhisattva is like someone who is going to get every single person, carry them out of the house before he leaves the house. It's it's uh, it's like a, a compassion taken to its fullest extent. You know, I'm going to suffer the longest out of anyone uh, in existence so I can get them out before me. That's That's how I kind of conceptualize it in my head no i think that's definitely and and, and there's lots of stories like this. i mean it's again some it, it gets tricky because um without saying that i don't think that these stories are real or something which you know maybe some of them are some of them aren't doesn't i don't think it really matters that much but um there are stories you know it's 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 uh famous stories of like for example um in a i believe it was in a pat one of the jataka tales and the, the the buddha in a past life um, you know, he was out in the wilderness somewhere and, um, he saw some, he saw a tiger <clears throat> and the tiger had, um, cubs that were starving. They were, they were starving to death. They were very hungry. And the, the Buddha then was like, oh, as a, you know, the Bodhisattva, you could say, I guess, cause he wasn't the Buddha yet. Um, he said, I this is intolerable this is how sad these beings are suffering I you know I need to help them and so he threw himself off a cliff and died <laughs> committed suicide so that the tiger cubs would have would have meat to eat now you know at a surface level you could say like well how is that different from just this suicidal shitlib morality you know that's currently responsible for the destruction of Western civilization. And I mean, again, on a surface level, that's maybe, I I can understand that kind of a response. However, number one, it's important to understand that, you know, these are, these are not things that you're supposed to be taking literally. These are not, these are, you know, part of what's going on is these actions are celebrated as exceptional because they're things that you're, they're not, they're not things you're supposed to do i mean you're supposed to sort of have it in mind as a kind of like ideal in terms of a mindset or an intention or motivation but it's not 
it's not directly like if if you were to throw yourself off a cliff to feed tigers at any point in in the past 2500 years in any buddhist society people would think you were an idiot um and rightly so number two and this is obviously closely related is while it's not to my knowledge explicitly thematized in that story there's an important element here of um you know one of the most important foundational mahayana concepts is the idea that wisdom and compassion are an indivisible unity um and it's understood in other words that when you are compassionate in that kind of a way that that if it's not balanced by a, a sort of far-seeing wisdom such that for example the bodhisattva in that case his wisdom allowed him to understand that by doing this enormously self-sacrificial self-sacrificial act it would be a great accumulation of merit that would ultimately benefit both himself and vast numbers of beings because it would accelerate his development on the path to perfect buddhahood unless you have that kind of insight that kind of wisdom you know do those kind of actions are you know let's say counterproductive um so so again you know the the, the key point is that it's really really important to understand and, and again we talked about this a little on the compassion but i'll just i'll just on the compassion episode of the podcast but I'll, just to reiterate wisdom and compassion are two sides of the same thing and for the mahayana like these 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 um concurrent with the um development of this ideal of a burning compassion was the development of this ideal of a perfect wisdom and the earliest Mahayana literature some of the earliest Mahayana literature is called the perfection of wisdom literature the perfection of wisdom sutras Prajnaparamita which I'll talk to about, talk about in a second but I wanted to I've been talking a lot and I wanted to maybe hear um, some of the other guys first now from the Jataka text that's also the source for the story of the compassionate captain of that one ship uh, yes for, for those yep. who haven't heard it before there was a ship's captain, and I guess it's the Buddha in one of his past lives, who discovers that one of the passengers is planning to kill all the other passengers in the ship so he can, I guess they were all merchants and he was going to loot whatever goods they were carrying. And so realizing that either this person was going to do that and condemn themselves to the hell realms for, um, was going to condemn themselves for to the hell realms for some kind of enormous stay, uh, he decides that he's going to take matters into his own hands and with tears in his eyes st kills this person. And I guess the c most common retelling is that he, when he dies, he, he, he bounces off the hell realm because, like, still, it's a bad thing, but he does this out of compassion, and so that makes, that counterbalances a lot of the uh, karma that would have otherwise been generated from the act. Something else that is at play, and this is way I personally like to think of it is that part of what makes up this wisdom is seeing through the illusion of the self seeing into your self nature so you know when those boundaries are gone there's there's a thing that happens it's kind of like an expansion of your felt identity you know you the lines that we draw between self and other are gone and that's a part of wisdom and that plays into and and supports compassion because now I'm seeing that like in the same way that the self is an illusion, these so-called other beings are also in a way like me, you know? And I like to look at, as kind of like a mental heuristic or shortcut, I like to look at every other being 
as kind of a simultaneous reincarnation of myself because we're all our consciousness is the same so you know i it, it just kind of allows you that that's one of the ways in which wisdom and compassion are together they always go together because the insight sort of gives you a rationale for the compassion and the compassion brings you closer to the insight it's a a, virtu a virtuous circle right a positive feedback loop yeah i mean that's how it's supposed to work and and when when you're clicking definitely it's i think works like that um the I thing mean, I about, could say yeah, that, please please i guess you could say that wisdom um uh, this this kind of insight and wisdom allows you to act in a way that is maximally compassionate even when you could do, be doing something that at least on the surface appears to be completely without compassion i mean that's precisely what's happening with the that example of that ship's captain is normally killing is never a compassionate thing but in this particular case because he has this kind of wisdom and insight he's able to recognize that this actually is a compassionate act right and well and this connects to um, so our friend Karsten asked a great question that is very closely related, you know, compassion, how could an enlightened being suffer? Um, really, at a certain level, what, what this is about, there's, there's a frame, central issue here, which is what does it really mean to have compassion? It's one of these words that we kind of throw around without necessarily... You know, this is this is always the thing, right? When when we see the invaders on the boats, it's like, oh, why don't you be compassionate? Um, and then there's a kind of, you know, in a sense, misanthropic response or or compassion, you know, a different kind of response. It, you know, like Petty Lincola says, you know, if you if you love life, and you're in the lifeboat, and the lifeboat can only support so many people, and other people are trying to get into it, that you sever the hands, right? That that take, take the axe and sever the extra hands that cling to the lifeboat. That's right. So so that is you know now that may sound extreme, but it, it's I, the, we have to understand what is it you know does it does trying to fit a hundred people on a lifeboat that is designed for ten like what what is the consequence of that going to be? That's not to say that um, in fact pointedly not to say that. 10 lives are always and everywhere more important than a hundred just because the numbers are, 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 are sorry that a hundred that the 10 lives are, are uh, how to say Buddhism. You don't, and it, see, please. You don't want to be utilitarian here. That's right. not what it's about. It's not what this is about. It's not about saying like, you know, well, if we're going to save a hundred lives versus save a thousand lives, then we're going to choose a thousand lives. That, that's not what's going on. The, this is where I'm, this is where I, you know, it's important to understand that I would say Buddhist ethics are, teleological teleological meaning they 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 are focused on the idea of a telos or an end in the aristotelian sense which is to say that there is a goal the goal is buddhahood or in the case of the non-mahayana traditions you know arhatship nirvana point is what facilitates the goal is essentially what's good what facilitates accomplishing Buddhahood for oneself and all sentient beings from a Mahayana perspective, what, what the, the best way to do that is the correct course of action. Even if it means severing hands, even if it means killing people, kind of no matter what, that, that it's an overriding concern. Can this, you know, this is where like, you know, the, your, your typical kind of shit lib would be like, Oh, but that can be abused and people can think the self-deception. Yes, of course it can. Anything can. So what? 
It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, the point I is, have some, yeah, please. I have some clarifying uh, notes on the question that was asked about, like, you know, how can an enlightened being suffer? So the word being used for suffering is dukkha, and that has a specific meaning. So this is this is a Zen perspective, and I don't know how much this will apply or or agree with some of the other perspectives here, but there's a famous koan where uh, Master Mazu, who is a Chan master of the Golden Age, um, he was at, he was very ill, physically very ill, very sick, and I think about this koan all the time because you know I, I was injured for a long while and stuff like that. But uh, the monk asked him, uh, "Master, you are very ill. You know how how are you doing? Are you okay today?" And he said, "Sun face Buddha, moon face Buddha." It's not that. And Master Mazu was an extremely accomplished, fully enlightened Zen master, very respected, and uh, you know. Even if you are a perfect Buddha and I stab you, you're going to feel that pain. That's not the same thing as a specific type of suffering that that dukkha is, right? It's an existential suffering, a feeling of lack and unsatisfactoriness, like a hole at the center of your being. Uh, interestingly, uh, emptiness also kind of points to something just like that. So, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. There's actually another koan too, where um, there's a monk who's right at the edge of uh, seeing into his self nature right he's right at satori and what happens is is he i think he trips and falls or otherwise gets injured and the master is standing right there next to him and he says now do you see that you can't be fooled by others <laughs> and what that yeah and what that clarified for him was was you know the suffering is is different than your sort of mundane physical pain or, or discomfort right so even if someone, you know, we can feel compassion for someone who's gone through the gateless gate because they're still embodied, they're still human, they still have to deal with all those things. There's just not this extra layer of existential dukkha on top of it. How, do you, how does that strike you guys? That, that sounds interesting. The, so, well, I, I interpret it. Oh, sorry. Kagi, even you a fully enlightened yeah. Buddha, though, I mean, there's still they still are dealing with the karma that has been accrued in their previous lives, at least in their last final lifetime is that not the case in the typical analysis and i feel we may be getting a bit in the weeds but yes it's it's the the, the model on the kind and again this stuff is like really hard to talk about because um because i mean like the example that was that's often given is mugalana one of the buddha's uh disciples was murdered by robbers as a consequence of i mean i guess the analysis was as a consequence of like i think it was betraying his parents or having thought about betraying his parents in one of his past lives yeah the, the the typical model is that you have a certain amount of karma kind of built up over beginningless time. It it gets it uh, comes to it, it ripens or comes to fruition in various points in various ways. Usually, like so, you do the, the the way this typically works. The kind of vicious cycle is, you know, bad karma ripens as like negative circumstances. You know, uh, somebody. Re, you know rapes and murders your wife this makes you very upset because you don't have the wisdom to understand you know the bad shit that you did to make this happen among other things so you get angry and you kill the rapist creating bad karma that further ripens as <laughs> bad results later on that then keep the cycle going this is obviously like the very negative version there's also a virtuous cycle you just kind of you know you can sort of flip it around but the point is um that 
for a Buddha in the um, in, in 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 on the at the end, yes. After you, you the, the typical way this this is understood is the Buddha attained the final result. It's not. I don't think typically that he had. It's not that he had more karma per se. It's that there was a certain amount of um, almost like um, momentum, you could say, of like like his his, his psychophysical aggregates, the the five bundles, um, weren't completely. Um, they still had some like force behind them, and then when he attained parinirvana, because it, Buddhas don't die, um, die, death is something that happens to sentient beings. Um, at that point his aggregates um, ceased for one, once and for all. So there were no, like, for example, physical remains because there was, like, in order to have physical remains, you, your, your body has to, like, kind of still be there. But the, the continuum of his physical and psych, psychic aggregates... His causal causal body, as they exact, say in yoga. Y- is that a thing? Yeah, uh, that, that, yes, yeah. That, that's interesting. Yeah, um, part, part of our bodies are considered to be a a a complex of causes that are ongoing. Yeah, exactly, and it's mi- like mind and body kind of mutually affecting each other every moment, moment by moment. So that that stopped. That continuity stopped, and so his he, he essentially would have looked if you were there like he disappeared. Is the idea? Um, so one way I like to think about this idea of extinguishing karma is that. It's not that so this is this is how I think of it, right? And this is me putting words to the the unsaid understanding from Chan Zen. This that and this is what it feels like as well, in my opinion, is that instead of being subject to karma, you then become one with the con- the condition that allows karma to function. You you are now the environment in which cause and effect and karmic forces play out instead of being enmeshed in it. If that yeah, makes sense. One one thing I've heard is you know, and I, this actually makes a lot of sense given you know, um, I mean it may be hard to understand. I don't know how much sense it'll make, but to me it makes sense given you know sort of um, where I am with stuff. That it it's more like first of all you have to disentangle pleasure and pain from suffering and happiness or joy. Pain is a, essentially physiological or causal. It's a it's a feature of certain kinds of conscious states, but it's it's in and of itself it's just another phenomenon, or or just a feature of a causal phenomenon, which is well, yeah. I mean, you cognition. have the pain, you have the pain, and then on top of it, you have the uh, delusion and attachment to the lack of pain, and it is the yeah. Like, I want to be. That's exactly yeah. yeah. So yeah. the so difference between like you mean like the pain as the physiological, like the nerve signals, but then it's being ultimately it's being interpreted by the mind somehow, which is then registering it as pain. no. That's actually oh. not what's going on, right? Oh yeah. So so I mean now I'm getting deep, but it's actually all connected, and it's an important point, and it also connects back to the Mahayana, which is why um, we can pursue this. So no, the what you just did was you drew a a line between the now this is not your fault it's just sort of how we're trained to think you drew a line between the let's say the nerve excitation and the um subjective affective feeling of pain yeah the, ph- the, the phenomenological experience of but pain the point pain, is that right? the, the there is no pain other than the phenomenological subjective Ex- affective experience of it like if right. the nerve endings for for pain go off but you don't feel pain for whatever reason then there is no pain 
Yeah. Like the two are two are not the same thing, and it's really only it's only the second that that is what matters. What's determinative of the experience is the nature of the experience. So now now the the, the key point is as far as like I mean again this is all theoretical. I don't mean to claim any special insight here, but the point is like I mean you know sort of speaking as I don't know someone who studied this stuff a little bit. The the point is that. The, the the sub the fact that there is like an unpleasant let's say dimension to like our subjective experience someone hits you and there's like pain right from a kind of bodhisattva's perspective or or even potentially depending on your model of buddhahood from a buddha's experience it's not that the buddha like the buddha doesn't suffer the buddha's beyond just to be very clear about this there's no such thing as like suffering anymore both for the reasons that storm mentioned and also just it's like doesn't it's not possible to suffer however it may be possible at least on certain accounts for there to be this pain but the point is that the buddha no longer has a sense of self the buddha has understood like there is no such thing as self this idea of like myself subjectivity my first person experience you know this idea of like the pain is something that happens to me that doesn't apply anymore so pain. it could be please Pain isn't suffering. Pain causes suffering because yes. there's delusion, right? Yes. So let's very simple example. Let's say I'm sitting here, and and I get a crazy urge to stab a Phillips head screwdriver through my hand. Okay, it's the actual experience of pain is not what the suffering is, right? The suffering comes about because I'm attached. Well, you start thinking it's like, oh my god, why am I having these fucked up thoughts? Why, why why do, why am I like, you know, pain turns into dukkha, and it's what's wrong with me that I have this thought that I want to harm, you know, myself or someone else? Why we all get these thoughts of, you know, just crazy shit that comes into our head for no reason, you know? And it's like, you know, oh, and then some people go neurotic or they think that they, you know, they we get all torn up and tied up in knots because it's like, oh, I have these these terrible thoughts and I'm such a bad person and you know all these kinds of things and it's like, well, as opposed to if you were to just be able to say, well, well, you know, we all we all we're all messed up. We're all here in samsara. Samsara is a fucked up place. Um, this thought occurred. The thought passed. The thought is no longer there. Why am I still clinging on this thought? Why am I telling this whole big narrative about these thoughts that I have or have had? You're, you're not personally liable for all the stuff that comes through your mind. Your thoughts can have a a a energy and movement that you don't you don't have to. You, be totally you don't have to buy all that you're not responsible for those thoughts and and part of what's what helped me understand like what i was supposed to be engaged in doing my shikantaza meditation is that like the stuff just comes in and there it is and it goes out it has nothing to do with the consciousness that's aware of it you know what i mean yes you can use your will to make thoughts and then you are buying those thoughts because you're consciously having them but then again all that stuff is also uh, motivated by in part by lines of cause and effect that you didn't have a choice in right so no you don't have to buy off on everything you think it's okay it's the, not you doing it the point of, of so much of this and again this applies for both the Mahayana and the non-Mahayana as well is that there is no such thing as a self so when you identify like the, the whole point is like when you when so much of our suffering and really so much of the problem comes back to this fundamental error of thinking that you know when you have a thought that it's my thought that it's like reflective like you know i i, I have this identity i have this narrative that i'm very wrapped up in and i'm i'm, I'm saying this like now on i'm speaking to you honestly you know as yes i'm a racist shitlord with the racist podcast on the internet but i'm also speaking to you 
quite frankly, which is, you know, when I, I, you know, when we all, we all go through these things, I go through these things, you know, I, I have a, an experience like this and I identify with it. I, I think of it as like a negative reflection on me, right? Like I have this thing that I want to be a certain way or present myself a certain way. And then when I do things or have thoughts or desires that conflict with that self image, that that creates, you know, discomfort. Um, so the the key point is to is to understand that it's it's both this um kind of conceptual overlay of this idea of you know i am myself i have this identity i am me and the pre-theoretical even you could say phenomenological sense of like being the guy behind the camera like your eyes are this camera looking out on the world and i am the cameraman behind the camera looking you know doing the the th- the thing that's all just an, that's just wrong it, it's it's very natural we've been doing it for eons and eons and eons beginning you know millions and you know millions and millions uncountably billions of universes um and, and all these billions of lives within those universes that we've been reincarnated we've been doing this it's not it's not that um it's not that it's our fault it's thinking about it again thinking of it in terms of of a fault is is playing into this narrative about like I am me, I have done these things, I have this identity, it's, I it's me delusion, me. It's delusion, delusion in the back door. So, so, so we gotta we gotta break that habit. Is 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 the is the the bottom line, and that's why. And so to get back to bring this back around to this question of you know how could an enlightened being suffer or what is compassion really? It's not. First of all. Enlightened beings, to speak in those terms, no longer have a sense of self, no longer have a sense of I. This is happening to me. Why is this happening to me? There's none of that, number one. Number two, it's not compassion in this term, in, the, in, the, in this framework, is, is purely a desire for beings to no longer suffer. That's it. It's very simple, very rigorous. There's none of this bullshit about like, oh, you know, and like, you know, well, the, what about the migrants who are starving? It's like, well, what about the other, you know, 7 billion people on the planet? How does allowing these migrants on the boat into my country affect them? How does that affect yeah, this, my civilization? You know, it, this is it, this is less like deontology or utilitarianism and much more like virtue ethics is the way yes, you can think of it in Western yes, terms. Definitely. And so so uh, from that kind of a, kind of a perspective, one thing that that is said, or I've heard said, and and again, it's it's really it's becoming more true, I would say, in my experience, is, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, one way to think about it is that all these beings running around are like children. This is actually a very common metaphor in the text. Is they say like you know childish beings, and it's really true. Like I, I it's not it's not that I don't get angry at people or that I don't you know have these kind of um, negative reactions or whatever, but I, I oftentimes now looking back at people in my life that I've been very upset at for one reason or another, there's a genuine kind of compassion that can manifest where it, it's not that I'm thinking like, um, oh, you know, because it could be superficial or self-congratulatory. That's not really what I'm talking about. What I mean is I, I look at them and I think about, you know, the, the way they've treated me, for example, in ways that I didn't like, and I'm like, man, those people are so deluded. Like, how sad for them. How sad for them that they're, like, so lost in this, um, 
in this in this delusion about you know oh what's gonna what's gonna actually benefit them and how can they not see that they're just creating more problems it's almost funny i i think it i think it can be you know it's not pity pity is i don't think a very helpful you know thing to, it's, it's it's not really what, what's going on here it's really just like man how how funny and how like kind of tragic it is for this person that's just caught like a little kid you see a little kid you know like reaching for the cookie jar and you know that it's just gonna like whatever fall on his head or something and 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 like anyone with half a brain could see that but the kid because it's just a stupid kid he like he's gonna reach for that cookie jar and it's gonna fall on his head and it's gonna suck and it's gonna hurt him and his mom's gonna get mad at him later um but you know sometimes you just gotta let the kid reach for the cookie jar and have it fall on his head and get his mom upset because that's the way he learns no, it definitely is, and I mean, it's, you definitely can see that with some people. You, you notice that they are creating for themselves problems in the future by their actions today, and they're just not, they just don't realize it, and it is easy to feel pity for them in that case. Yeah, but again, you know, pity, it's not about it's not about pity. It's not yeah, about no. like I, th I think to me. It, again, I guess it's more like awareness. Like you, you just kind of have like this this momentary. You, you almost are just like aware of it. Like you can see it. Right, and that's the wisdom quality that we we were talking about before. Is is what enables you, like in, in a sense, you know, you, you people can talk about this. It gets talked about in different ways. You like a third eye, so to speak. And yeah, I mean, it's not the worst metaphor. Um, it's really, I think a lot of it, maybe not entirely, but a lot of it comes down to being able to um, see the consequences of actions, like very much like that example with the kid um, in the cookie jar. You know, it, it, it's, if something is predictable, um, being able to see the ways in which and, and why it's predictable is an important it's just important, and and that so much I think of what we call wisdom really comes down to that. Yeah, I mean I, I can see it in my daily life all the time. You have these people who spend money on things that don't really make them happy in this kind of game of one-upsmanship against people who they don't really even like, and you realize how how they're just kind of trapped in this cycle, which I know it's only causing them further suffering, and I'm aware of that. And on one hand, I would like them to stop because I know that it's not making them happy. But at the same time, I see them caught in this web and unable to pull themselves out because they just don't see what's going on. Yeah, and here and here's where I wish we had um, Aura. It's a shame he couldn't make it so far to uh, to maybe provide some Theravada perspective because I'm I'm sure this is all very similar or even identical from a from a Theravada perspective. Again. It, it, okay, so maybe here's you know another uh, important point. Well, I have room. a yeah, quick please. comment on yeah. on what uh, Kagi was saying. So this is kind of like uh, what you were just talking about is is essentially the function that your your Zen teacher is going to fulfill for you. Um, the more you spend time with him and you do Dokusan and you guys do Dharma combat and you listen to him talk, he because he's got clear vision can see a lot of the times exactly how you're caught in things you can't see, and that is the hidden logic behind all the koan collections the master can see uh things that you can't see about yourself and he's giving you specific remedies for those things so that's that's exactly how it works you know like there may be some person who's way too caught up in in memorization of the the suttas and uh he wants he's he's so caught up on um having this perfect conventional understanding of 
of how all this stuff works. And because of that, he doesn't, he's not making an attempt. He's, he's far away from uh, entering the Dharma gate, seeing into his self nature and, and seeing the Tathata, right? So the master can see that. And that's when you end up with these ridiculous quips and these silly answers and stuff, because that puts him in the, in the position of why is this enlightened teacher telling me that the Buddha is a three eyed fish? what does that fucking mean right and then you might have somebody else who is you might have somebody else who is uh trying to just like oh this doesn't matter it doesn't matter what my conventional understanding is i can just yell or have some silly response and that's when you'll often find the master engaging him on this complex level and asking these deep questions right he sees they can see into your it's almost like you can see into a person's karma and and look at what's deficient and see what they need and you know, as an example earlier, the Kagi was talking about, you see these people in your life that are caught up in this stuff, and they don't see how they're caught up. And yeah, I mean, again, here we have another example of wisdom and compassion really being the same thing. So that um, maybe brings us to like the other or another like kind of big picture thing I wanted to bring up, which is uh, what I mentioned before about the perfection of wisdom literature. Um, this is a enormous topic, an enormous topic, and and I don't, you know, there's no, I'm not going to try to really do justice to it here. I just think it's important to kind of highlight and throw out that when when you're talking about quote unquote the Mahayana, um, in terms of historical development, you're talking about essentially a series of movements starting i don't know so let's say that we give a provisional date of around 450 for the for buddha shakyamuni somewhere around there 450 before um the birth of christ then you have a, a somewhere around maybe 200 before the birth of christ to 100 before the birth of christ you start to see the kind of earliest divergences in terms of teaching and thinking and people writing down stuff um, that would correspond to eventually to the Mahayana. Um, then over the next several centuries, you get first the development of the perfection of wisdom literature, which is probably put into writing around the time of the birth of Christ. It's not really clear. Um, and then you have this continues to develop the, the you have. So you well, let me let me continue with the big overview first. So you have the perfection of wisdom. Then you have uh, the development con- uh, with of the <laughs> there's there's a there's a kind of separate. Oh, now I, I need to back up. So there's three baskets <laughs> of. I'm sorry. There's just so much stuff. There's hey, three. You, know, you just gotta laugh sometimes. Yeah. There's three big categories of Buddhist literature. There's the sutras which are the scriptures or the usually they're framed as discourses usually between the buddha and his disciples in the earliest materials uh then you have the vinaya which is the monastic code of conduct which is rules but also a lot of stories the kind of the framing stories explaining why there is a certain rule and then you have the abhidharma which is last it's um it goes way back but it's the it, it's the kind of um like it, it, it doesn't it's not quite in the same category because it's very like the sutras ostensibly were it's it's someone saying it always starts thus have I heard once upon a time at such and such a place and such and such a time the Buddha said this and that the Abhidharma is not it's not a rec, it's not a record of someone's memory of when the Buddha actually spoke it's 
collections of lists of things typically from those earlier sutras and it's it's long lists of categories of you know these are the different kinds of elements these are the different aspects of cognition these are the different you know types of perception these are the many all just long and endless lists um and it's very interesting if people are into that i mean it's, it's some of that is um very relevant some of it is less relevant but it's it's all very interesting if you're if you're into that um so as the, the, the what the perfection of wisdom literature is in terms of how it how it presents itself as a text within the Buddhist textual tradition is as a sutra, which is to say as a discourse. But unlike the earlier sutras, which are all, you know, this one time the Buddha was at some rich guy's house and he told people who were there, you know, if you want to avoid, you know, suffering, then do this stuff. Um, the perfection of wisdom of literature is a it's a dialogue but it's a dialogue between the buddha and usually of basically he says oh hey avalokiteshvara um you know this sort of celestial bodhisattva of compassion like you seem like you have some stuff to say why don't you talk and then avalokiteshvara or other figures but usually avalokiteshvara will um give a lecture on the nature of reality in certain ways um and it's it's the the, the elements of it that are discursive which is to say that they have a this element of discourse or, or or speech between like two or more people it's these like celestial bodhisattvas and buddhas um that are you know not human beings it's like not human not human beings divine enlightened beings talking to other divine enlightened beings and 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 there's so there's this kind of visionary aspect to it which is why some of the you know, materialist historians who study this stuff, um, sometimes, you know, they, they, they think that there's an element to this of basically monks who are super hardcore, who are really, really, really into the practice, were going off into the forest in secluded meditation and having these crazy visionary experiences and writing them down. And that's some of what's going on here. Now, how much of that, you know, I, I actually, I, I, you know, as, a, as an insider and a kind of religious fundamentalist, so to speak, um, I don't actually really have a problem with that account. I think that it's entirely possible that a monk could have had a vision of a conversation between Avalokiteshvara and Shakyamuni and that this would totally count and be fine as an explanation at a certain level. But it's also like, okay, but who knows? It, and it doesn't really matter. Um, the point is that um, as the perfection of wisdom literature was uh, it was enormously influential really from the from the from very early on and it and it sort of formed the backbone of what would become known as the mahayana um you also had concurrent with that a development of the abhidharma because the abhidharma was like you know people were there's a lot of it has to do with philosophy and debate and pe different people in different areas sort of disagreeing about stuff so um what what happened was that that you had basically the Mahayana Abhidharma, Mahay, Mahay, people who were part of the Mahayana movement, who were doing their own kind of Abhidharma, and people who were not in the Mahayana were doing their own kind of Abhidharma, and there was a lot of cross pollination. These doc, we would be nowadays two thousand years later, we can say like, well, these are this is guys in this category, and this other guys in that category, and there's some validity to that. But these lines were not nearly so clear back then. The point being that. Um, 
what we call or what you could think of as Mahayana Abhidharma. Abhidharma, like systematic categorization of the elements of reality or the reality index, um, as it develops, essentially becomes very closely aligned and, 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 and an essential part of what's called Yogacara or yoga, yogic practice, which is in many ways just a kind of direct Mahayana continuation of the... Um, of the of the pre-existing abhidharma it borrows the categories for the most part it borrows the terminology the way of thinking and so on and so this from that point on characterizes mahayana as a as an intellectual movement and, and uh, for, basically you have a kind of there's this backbone which is the perfection of wisdom literature and the kind of the, the people who are really focused on the perfection of wisdom literature end up kind of coalescing around what you could call the middle way school of philosophy or the Madhyamaka, um, which is sort of, you could say, inaugurated with the um, root verses of the middle way by Nagarjuna, who's a hero of mind and storms. And, yes, please. Yeah, while you're on that, I'd like to hear how that, because to me that is, I mean, that is my favorite part of <laughs> Buddhism in, in, outside of the the Zen stuff that, I, that I'm used to. So how does that... Um, how does that kind of fit into the broader story? Because Nagarjuna to me seems like just just super important because he's he's he basically well, presented an ironclad philosophical case for essentially the truth of Buddhism. I, I I've I've thought about it so long and I don't know how you could attack it. I mean, it's I don't think you, I mean I agree and uh, you know it's uh, you can't is the short answer. I mean I would say, yeah. The what he what he did so so first of all. Um, in a in a kind of traditional perspective, the I, I don't know if we have a record. I mean, if that would be like deep esoterica. I don't know, but I don't even know that we have a like a, a name for him other than Nagarjuna. But to my knowledge, the reason we call him Nagarjuna is because he was like a very wise and learned monk. He was you know at one of these um, Buddhist kind of institutions of higher learning, and um, traveled to the Naga realm for those of you out in what is it Rio Rio Indus or something I'm trying uh, to come to, up with today it. uh today we refer to this as Baltimore yeah <laughs> so so uh yeah then Baltimore that's <laughs> fucking hilarious oh my god yes the Naga realm where all the Nagas live um yeah so like, uh you know the Midwest is like the, the Deva realm right <laughs> now, Day, Day, Dayton Ohio is Paranirvana so yes anyway yeah, so the the Nagas are these like uh the other Nagas are these uh like snake-like creatures. They live under the ground, often in places where there's like water, places where there's water, places where there's underground, places where there's underground water. And uh they were the initial beings that had been entrusted with the perfection of wisdom scriptures by the Buddha. The, 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 a lot of the Buddha's teaching even again, not a Again, people, there was a kind of like thing that go, there was like a meme for a while where the Mahayana was like some kind of perversion or corruption of this pure original Buddhism and it introduced all these fantastical and supernatural elements. And it's like, you know, the early, the, first of all, that's just bullshit. But the idea that the Buddha went to other realms, not just like our earth and taught there goes all the, literally all the way back there's never a point in the buddhist tradition where this idea that the buddha goes places besides our planet our world to teach 
doesn't exist. That's always been there. And so one of the ideas is basically that the Buddha, um, like there were these scriptures, these perfection of wisdom scriptures that were entrusted to the Nagas because they're also like guardians of treasure. And it's this very, very valuable treasure. And somehow, I forget all the details, but basically Nagarjuna goes and he like makes friends with the princess of the Nagas who like bestows him with these texts and he takes them back. And Snake he, GF. Yeah, that that feel when no uh, no mer- mermaid no snake GF. Snake GF. Yeah, <laughs> so so uh, so he goes back and he teaches the perfection of wisdom, and initially because um, it's it's a lot of what's going on. If you if you actually ever read the perfection of wisdom, which I think people should, if you have interest in this, I think it's 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 fairly readable and and quite interesting in a number of ways. Um, so there's like a famous formulation, and in a sense, this is the heart of Madhyamaka philosophy, and and the the kind of I think the irrefutability that Storm was mentioning was was really comes down to this, which is this formulation. You know, emptiness is form, form is emptiness. Heart sutra, um, right? The heart. That's the heart sutra. Is so there's there's different lengths of the perfection of wisdom. The earliest is probably in eight thousand lines, and then you get like I think twenty or twenty five thousand, and then you get like a hundred thousand, which actually isn't. If you count them, it's not exactly 100,000. But they say, you say 100,000. And then it gets condensed all the way into a couple pages, which is the Heart Sutra, which is one of the most um, precious, precious things that we have. Um, it's just incredibly valuable and incredibly precious and if incredibly you're going beautiful. If something, you should yeah. chant the Heart Sutra. You yeah. can, I'm not going to make any like wide sweeping claims of occult stuff, but let me just, you should just chant the Heart Sutra. Just do it. It's not long. Just do it. And uh, find it in Sanskrit. There's actually maybe we can link in the show notes. There's some um, you have even some Sanskrit Sanskrit chants of it. It's just very nice. So the point is that um, so in terms of the philosophy, we should we should talk. We should do an episode, maybe even next one on Madhyamaka. But but the point is that um, you know the, this idea that everything is it has to be empty, and that has a certain kind of meaning. And uh, and but that because everything is empty, everything can appear. And this is I don't think it's refutable. Um, but the, the, the specific formulation of like emptiness is form and form is emptiness is actually connected to, cause form in that sense is an Abhidharma category. And if you read the perfection of wisdom sutras, they go through like, you know, mind is empty of mind. Eye is empty of eye. Ear is empty of ear. Nose is empty of nose. Tongue is empty of tongue, you know, it's, etc. Like, the idea is basically you go through each and every element of each and every list. And this is why like some of these perfection of wisdom sutras go on for hundreds of thousands of lines is because you, you, the Abhidharma is just these interminable, just endless lists. And so you go, if you go through every single element, you say, well, actually that's empty. Actually that's empty. Actually that's empty. You know, it creates, and of course there's more to it than that. But the point is that it's, it's a kind of a systematic, um, in a sense, you could say refutation to some extent it was, I think pitched as a refutation of Abhidharma. That's like, if you read Nagarjuna's, you know, root versus middle way, part of what he's doing is he's directly going after foundational Abhidharma um, ideas. Then you had on the other, like the, the, the problem with that, I would, it's not a problem exactly. It's so much as like, okay, well then what do you say? Like I, one direction you can go with this. And which is, I think the direction that, as I understand it, that Zen goes is like, okay, well, 
really, you know, trying to nail anything down in language is like trying to nail, you know, jello to a wall. Like that's not how language doing that with language or even trying to do that with language is never really going to get you where you want to go. So we're going to have to try to like circumvent this problem of language and thought by like using language in, in creative ways to try to induce this state um, of non-conceptual wisdom that is really what yeah. we're after in the first place. Please. So it, the way I like to describe the Zen approach is that you can think of, so the, the problem delusion is when you take language beyond the conventional, right? You have attachments, you take language beyond the conventional. So a way you can describe the Zen linguistic practice is that that delusion is like a computer virus in your mind. So what it does is it takes that virus and turns it back on itself so that when that is destroyed, then the Tathata is revealed, right? That's yeah, and this goes. idea of like taking and turning stuff back in on itself, that's the essence of Nagarjuna's method. We should we should really do, maybe we can just do like a Muhammad Yamakarika series. We should do that. Please, go on. Can I hit you with my favorite uh, do quote it. from Jay Garfield? I know there's some, some <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm tension not, I'm not about Garfield. Yeah, but, but, yeah, sorry, go on. Uh, so Nagarjuna ends on the emptiness of emptiness, and I think this is a beautiful way to describe it. He says, the emptiness of phenomenon is that they are conventional. The emptiness of emptiness is that that is as far as it goes. Yeah, I mean, it's right. And like, at a, if you, I think if you actually really understand that, there's basically like, what else is there to understand? Yeah, um, well, see, this is why I say that Nagarjuna is really where Zen starts. Because mm -hmm. if you act on what he shows, then you're left at essentially the Zen, the Zen practice, right? And then Bodhidharma, just carried that into China where it took on where it kind of flowered because the the Chinese spirit and feeling for nature uh, kind of linked to Taoism it, it was just this perfect uh, perfect cultural spiritual soup to give birth to this koan practice of of fully a doctrinal you know wisdom well actually that's where I've heard some criticism before of the idea that Zen is like Taoism dressed up in in Buddhist garments which I mean, it's it's really more like it makes use of the concepts or the worldview of Taoism to repackage it in this way, I think, is the better way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, they just already had uh, the cultural tools there to, to, to for, what they did, they had the cultural tools to formalize what happened in the, at the flower sermon. Yeah, we, we, I don't, I don't know, if we, I don't want to want to go into the flower sermon we can talk about um, that later. Yeah, maybe another time. I mean, it's just because it's, um, it's, I don't a, know. Maybe it's, a, it's a big topic. I think topic. we mentioned it previously. We have mentioned episode. it before. I mean, but but it's just another. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, yep. I just wanted to, to sort of to, to answer your, your kind of overriding question here, Storm, and, and also sort of like to, to give a broad overview of how, how this tradition sort of operates, at least in the Indian and then later Tibetan context. Um, the The in a sense, the problem is like, okay, well, put yourself in the shoes of someone who's like, in a, okay, you're a Buddhist in a kingdom that, you know, the king may be Buddhist or maybe not. Maybe he wants everyone, you know, maybe he likes Buddhism, maybe not. But you have to sort of provide a plausible um, account to compete with the various other, you know, there's Jains, there's Hindus, there's Shaivas, there's like various other kinds of people or there's other kinds of Buddhists and uh, like non-Mahayana Buddhists. So 
Now, maybe if you have a very close personal relationship with the king or whatever, then maybe, you know, he you can do this Dharma combat thing and, you know, work it that way, and that's great. But in a, in a kind of public context, it's it can be very hard. Like, middle-way philosophy, Madhyamaka, Nagarjuna, and all this stuff, they don't... Precisely because so much of it is about exposing the limits and an inherent kind of self-defeating properties of language and conceptual thought. Um, for for operations and applications where you like need quote unquote need conceptual thought to do some kind of stuff, it, it can be difficult to really accommodate from that kind of a perspective. So, in terms of providing you know, a, a scholastic approach for um, public debate, for, you know, arguing with non-Buddhists, for this, all that kind of stuff, you can, there's situations where you're going to want to have a more plausible, you know, something, something that gives people more to, like, latch onto in a certain sense. And, and I you see... Need the you need the best conventional representation yeah. and understanding of the of the non-conventional that you can so yeah. that you can teach people and they can exactly. learn. Exactly. And, and you can provide yeah. a framework because you know again there's no yeah. like when you say like well all your lists are dumb and like yeah that's true at a certain level but then it's like okay but you need you know certain you know you need you need something to hold on to at some point. You so, can't go I mean, beyond it if you don't have it in the first place. <laughs> Very well said. So uh, so that's why I think like this is why you know one of the main reasons why um, like the Yogacara textual tradition really developed as a kind of extension of, of the Mahayana Abhidharma is is to provide that for people and these this is really like and this is the one of the central tensions um, which is not to say that there there you know there was some competition there were some people who were you know kind of partisans for one side or another other people who were like you know uh, engaged in a kind of synthetic project i mentioned last week um the monk um professors uh uh Dukshita, who's you know very learned and very important wrote some very important texts in the indian buddhist tradition um you know he, his kind of whole thing at a certain level he, like he was a madhyamaka i mean he especially towards um in his later writings he kind of really stro quite strongly endorses um the idea that you need Madhyamaka and, and that it's kind of at the top of, of a certain kind of intellectual hierarchy. But he said, you know, he spends, he doesn't spend as much. It's sort of like he provides this very elaborate account of conventional reality and all these different sort of, you know, this is how perception works. This is how the mind works. This is how we can understand what's going on with causality and reality. And then after having done all that, he's like, okay. And then all of that's empty and then you're done. <laughs> like, you know, so it, it's sort of like this last little step that you have to do once you have all this other stuff in place. But you, you can't just, in a sense, sort of jump there. You have to have all this other stuff in place. I, I don't know how much sense that makes. Well, I mean, if you can jump there, but you can really only kind of do that from like the, uh, the tradition itself, right? Because there are, there are monks in Zen that they don't get any of that. I mean, the fourth the fourth patriarch was an yeah. illiterate woodcutter, right? So that that does happen, but you still it still doesn't matter because those are corner cases, and you need something for everyone. Well, and, and then from a Buddhist perspective, you always you could always say like you know, and, and this gets back to the thing about the bodhisattva is, okay, but well they had experience in prior lives. Like you don't know what kind of what's in the background for them karmically. You know, like okay, yes, they're an illiterate woodcarver in this life, but. How much? Uh, that's a very good point. How much merit and wisdom do they accumulate 
prior to this life. Yeah, well said. Um, did we have any other? We're, we're like a little over an hour. I I I, I don't know how, how well this worked. I, I feel I'm really feeling Aura's absence is very unfortunate. I um, think it's been pretty. I think it's gone pretty well. Yeah, Good. I mean, Please. I guess the one concern would be like, well, the Heart Sutras. I mean, it 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 does seem irrefutable. It's also, I think, for a lot of people who are just approaching it, certainly my impression the first time I read it before I was really all that familiar with the concepts of Buddhism was this is incomprehensible. I mean, for someone who doesn't know really, you know, like the finer points of what's being meant by, you know, form or emptiness in the Mahayana tradition, it's it's a very difficult text to understand. And really, I mean, I think it's not something that... I think it's 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 still very difficult to understand some of the finer points within it. Well, yeah, I mean, for like the absolute layman, but I mean, if people are, I think if people are listening to this, then they're probably m- more advanced than the normal person in terms of like understanding philosophy and theology and 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 all that stuff. So, I mean, I think you're right for the average man, but for our listeners, I think they would be a you know have a better chance at getting something out of it than than the populace at large, right? Right. Was there anything else that you wanted to, was there any, um, did you think we should hit or uh, wanted to discuss? I'm looking in the chat to see if there's any. There was some, Carson wanted to know what you should tell me right fucking now. What the fuck does moon face Buddha, sun face Buddha mean? And don't give me any bullshit. I'm curious. About I want to know well. that actually. <laughs> well. Oh, uh, okay. Well, it, uh, when you're sun face Buddha, that's when you feel good in your Buddha. When you're moon face Buddha, that's when you feel bad in your Buddha. So there you go. Yeah, well, this, okay, so, and then there's another uh, question go. from our friend uh, Carson who says, uh, does this also have to do with non-action? And I think this, this maybe to, like, round this out. Yes, it very much does. There's this, like, the, so to kind of give a schematic overview here, the, like, action isn't real. What we think of as action is analyzable into a, you know, billions or trillions or how many, many, many kind of, individual particulars particles let's say like from a kind of generic perspective we could do we're talking about quarks and electrons and photons and blah 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 causally interacting with each other causally interacting with particulars which are your cognitions which are the various elements of your mind which is reducible into all these kind of similarly like in the sense that a you know an electron or a quark is a is an ontologically singular entity um, cognition is an ontologically singular entity. Um, the relationship between volition and cognition, which is to say will and cognition, is a kind of complicated and separate topic. But the point is that there is no, there is no such thing as um, action. But we, be, as part of this kind of web of delusion that we're caught in, where we think of like, you know, we look at a table or a jug and we see like a jug and we think of it as like a jug there is no jug there's many 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 particles right same thing with like the actions there's just moment infinitesimal moment plank length you know you know uh, split second you know billionths of seconds femtoseconds um moment by moment everything is changing and it's all kind of just this causal interaction series 
Um, and we, we sort of think of it as having this action that's sort of spread out across it when in reality that's not the case. And so when, with what Nagarjuna, sort of like a kind of TLDR, so to speak, at, in a sense, on Nagarjuna and on Madhyamaka and on the perfection of wisdom is pointing out precisely this, precisely that, you know, when you think you're you're looking at something and it looks a certain way, like, well, actually, I mean, yeah, it looks that way, but it, it there is no jug there. The, 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 the phenomenal appearance of the jug is empty of some kind of re, any kind of real jug. The, the idea of there being an action that you're doing, like I am, you know, picking up the jug, like you, you, you were, we're telling ourselves this story. It's implicit. It's not, it's not conceptual. That's also an important point. It's not like I'm, I'm sort of thinking like I am doing. It's, it's pre-theoretical. It's pre-conceptual. It's like built into this experience is this idea of like, I am in here. I am the cameraman behind the eyes or whatever. And I am reaching out my hand to grab the jug to do the thing. Again, in reality, like we're talking, you know, billionths of a second, every billionth of a second plus that the, the, you know, all of the particles are this, it, 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 they're in this, you know, buzzing subatomic soup, right? But that's not how we think of things. It's not how we interact with things. And so, so much of what the wisdom is in a certain sense, what it comes down to is, you know, really being very clear and having a very precise understanding of, you know, the fact that, like, actually this whole kind of causal story about, like, I am doing this action to this thing that's out there. Like, I am in here. I am acting. There is this action that is affecting this other thing that, I you know, is the the object of my action. Um, that None of that's real. Not in, not in the way that we sort of pre-theoretically assume it is. Um, I have a, a comment on action. Please. Okay, so I'm going to prove to everybody right now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that there is no actions occur anywhere whatsoever. Okay, so the reason for that is because there is no time at which an action can begin. So the present moment, the present has no duration. If it did, it would also contain the past and the future, which that doesn't make sense. Then you remove the present, right? If the present has a duration, it also has the past and future, so it doesn't make any sense. So there is no time at which an action can begin. An action can't begin in the present because it would already have been begun in the past. It can't begun in the future, begin in the future because the future's not here yet. There's no time at which an action can begin. Beginning requires duration and there's no duration in the present. There's no existent moment outside of the present. So there is no action at any time, anywhere whatsoever. Beautiful, yes. This is like, Nagarjuna 101. Yes. Yep. And, and, and again, like, how do you, the only way that you're going to quote unquote refute this is by like appeals to like, well, the future exists. It's just not here yet or something. I mean, just you're, nonsense. You're, in, you're talking nonsense. You're, you're inevitably going to reify something or negate something that's actually in our phenomenological experience. Yes. So, so the, so the middle ground between those two, boom, Majimaka. Did you want to? Uh, did, uh, did you want to close with? Did you have a koan in mind? Or I mean, I know you already said two. I have uh, just. I'll make. A, I'll make a new one for you right here. Do <laughs> all right. Okay. Um, beings that are deluded only see the truth. There's nothing else beside the truth. Buddhas always see the truth. So what's the difference? I think that's a, something we should all reflect on. 
Thank you so much, Storm and Kagyu. Thank you, everyone in the audience. I hope this has been enlightening and entertaining. And uh, as always, feel free to hit us up with any questions or comments. Other than that, we will see you next week. Thanks and goodbye.